is not good in the slightest. Uh, no, not good. Definitely not good. <laughs> okay, well, we're uh, good to go whenever. Doesn't mean it's not entertaining, but I was gonna say bad horror movies are usually the best because there's yes. that one. There's that one classic clip of that dude. Oh, they're eating her, and then they're going to eat me. <laughs> I remember oh you showing God. me that. Yeah, it was <laughs> so bad. Yep, and the garbage day. Garbage day is iconic. I don't care. Garbage day. Yeah, that. The man that's a Santa Claus movie. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's what makes it even worse. It's is a that... killer Santa Claus. Uh, honestly, if there's one horror movie that I do want, it's Elo Governor from Regular Show. That I would unironically watch every day of the week. I don't even know what that is, but I'm sure it's, it's better a, than it's what a, I watched. It is a haunted <laughs> British taxi. That just drives around looking for people, and every time it sees someone, it goes, Hello, governor, and then runs them over. <laughs> That's what, if, if I was a, a, a serial killer, I would definitely have a catchphrase. I, well, like, you know, Hello, governor. I it mean, would be something like that. that. <laughs> I don't know if copyrights, if I'm, I'm able to do that, but that would be so great. Just your, your, your serial killer catchphrase is like, That's how the cookie crumbles. And then you get some like fabulous uh, anime music, like straight out of Persona Five, blasting as you run away. I mean, you might as well. <laughs> it's like amazing. There. Hey there! Welcome back to another episode of the Waiting in the Sky podcast with TJ Starman. I am your host, TJ Starman. And this is the second episode of season two of the podcast. So you know what they say? First is the worst. Second is the best. I don't know if I want to lock into that. I don't know if that benefits me one way or the other, actually. Um, but I'm very excited to uh, be recording this episode. There's a lot of fun topics here today. Um, I am going to be having a Batman conversation leading into this week's uh, debut of The Batman starring Robert Pattinson. Uh, so we wanted to kind of discuss the cinematic history of the character. And what we came up with was what I'm dubbing Build-A-Batman. Uh, so going to take different elements of each of these movie Batman actors and then combine them into one ideal Batman character. And I'm so excited to be bringing uh, a buddy of mine, Isaac, on for that segment. Uh, we're going to be talking all of those movies and all of the best parts of those Batman actors. So very great conversation. And then I, you know, I in the last episode, I talked about how I had been wanting to talk about the Chicago Bulls because I was so miserable talking about the Chicago Bears. And I'm finally ready to be hurt again. Uh, so it's an it's another year. We're officially into the offseason of the NFL. So I return to the fountain of eternal hope and am going to be looking at the Bears draft prospects. I am going to be joined by Windy City Gridirons, Jacob Infante, uh, to have that discussion. I'm so excited to have him joining the podcast for this conversation. Uh, I took a crack at a mock draft. And this is not something that I do. Uh, however, it is something that Jacob does very, very well. And so we're going to have him take a look at, at my mock draft and, and see how I did overall and see if it's something that's going to work 
potentially, or, or, you know, maybe it's something that is just absolutely tragic, which I would not be surprised if it was the case since I mostly went in blind with that mock draft situation. So a couple of really great segments in this episode. I'm super excited to get into them. But before we do, of course, it's time to return to everyone's favorite segment established in the last episode, The Dick Pick with Richard Hugh III. Richard, how are you doing today? Oh, you know, I'm alive. (laughs) Very good to hear. Uh, So what what do you have for us to talk about today? Well, Elden Ring just did come out a few days ago, and that got me thinking about the overall difficulty level in uh, gaming in general in recent years. But I think I want to start off with Elden Ring just because everyone's been waiting for it for God knows how long at this point. It's a Soulsborne game from From Software, uh, so it's to be expected. Um, So I did not make the most progress, but I did have a chance to kind of dip my toe into this Elden Ring experience and and get a feel for it. I overall, you know, after a few hours, I I'm pretty satisfied and and excited about, uh, you know, continuing with this game. It's um, it's a lot to adjust to as someone who's not really familiar with all of the Soulsborne type games. Uh, I think prior to this one, my, my only real experience was a couple of hours in uh, Demon Souls for PS5, which I'll mention that I, I am playing Elden Ring on PS5. Uh, I, I did hear some things about the performance of, I think the PC was the one that had the more relevant issues. Oh my God. Yeah, I was poking around on Steam yesterday because I can't pick up the game yet. When I can, I will. But I was poking around on Steam and looking at some of the reviews and Already, they got a little bit of grief of like a week or two ago when they announced the specs. And it was like, yeah, we're going to recommend that you have at least 16 gigs of RAM to run this thing. So immediately warning signs were already going off in people's heads like that's not very optimized now, is it? Well, it gets even worse from there because there's people that have better gaming rigs than I do. And I'm running with like a 3070 Ti and these guys are having frame rate issues where it's dropping below 10 and staying there. So right now the PC release from what I hear is just an absolute nightmare to try to slog through. There's a couple things you can do to make it a little bit better, but most of the time you're just sacrificing graphical quality for performance as is tradition with PC gamers. But yeah, uh, so far for day one stuff, honestly kind of par for the course when it comes to triple a launch yeah just because most of the time now people don't give a, a damn about optimizing anything they're like oh we'll push a day one patch or a cyberpunk 2077 yeah we'll patch it in about a year or so we don't care <laughs> like let, let's let's take, let's take your money first and then if we get enough money from you then we'll update it yeah, that's it's it that does seem to be a pattern that is is unfortunately taking shape over these last few years. It's absolutely uh, scummy. Like I mean, I remember memes when like my freshman year of college of the Assassin's Creed games coming out and it's like people's eyes are like falling out of their character models and everything's bugging <laughs> out. And you figured with all the backlash they got for that, people would fix that, but nah, they kind of realized, wow. These guys did this and got away with it. Maybe we can get away with it, too. Yeah. Yeah. No. First of all, how dare you? Assassin's Creed Unity 
actually, uh, you know, runs really well in the year 2022 on a PlayStation 5. So sure, you'll do well to mind your tongue, Richard. <laughs> but yeah, no, it, it's definitely it's a scummy practice. Like you said, it, because it's not even promised that they will fix a lot of these issues or do it in a decent amount of time. And um, so you mentioned a frame rate of less than 10 frames like that. That is just atrocious. I, I can't imagine that. Like I was playing um, with a lot of PlayStation five games. They do have a simplified option of either a performance mode or a graphical mode. Um, and Elden Ring is no different. So I, I was playing it in the performance mode, emphasizing frame rate, and it still chugged at times, um, but did not get anywhere near like, oh my gosh, 10, 10 frames per second would be absolutely awful. Um, I mean, it didn't look like it's not the most beautiful game, um, but it also doesn't need to be given its art style and everything too. But I, you know, I think that overall, like it was running fine and it's going to smooth out a little bit uh, as we do get some patches, but it's at least on the console version that I'm playing, it's not broken the way it sounds like it was on these PC versions. Well, the nice thing about console releases is they take the time to make those options. Whereas on PC, you've got to think about the billions of different configurations that people are going to have on their specific gaming rig. And then from software has to sit there and think, okay, well, how are we going to run through every single graphical option ever to make sure it's compatible with everything? They don't have any knowledge of that. So when it comes to stuff like this, if they need to take like an extra day or two to see how stuff is running and then fix it, I can understand that. But I mean, at least with stuff like the PS5 and the Xbox Series X, they know what they're working with no matter what. And they know like what settings to tweak and what to do to get it to run perfectly on that specific console. Now, that said, I didn't even know that they were doing like a performance mode and then a graphical quality mode. That's honestly a pretty... Uh, I would say a pretty decent idea, but at the same time, it's like, if you already know what you're working with, why not just get the best of both worlds and not even have the option? Yeah, I, I think, and and I would imagine that's what they had been doing in the past with console releases is kind of finding that middle ground to optimize it that way for people. So for an audience that largely didn't know what they were, you know, working with at the time, you know, of the, of the PS2 and, and that type of era, you know, now that, you know, PC gaming had exploded so much and people actually understand the different settings of, of video quality. Um, I think they probably just put those options into the more recent games and especially like AAA games um, as a way of acknowledging that and giving people just a little bit more choice in how they want to approach their gameplay. Um, so I, I do appreciate that for sure. Um, but I, I here's watch this segue, Richard. Ready? I don't know what's harder, trying to navigate Elden Ring's graphical settings on PC or playing the game itself. Hey, you're learning. That was good. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yes, evolving. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's classic Souls difficulty, the kind where it's like you wake up in the morning and a guy just chucks a house at you and then you're dead. That's, that's <laughs> classic Dark Souls gameplay. I can attest to that. That has been my experience thus far. Well, I've even wa I uh, was watching Moist Critical play a little bit on YouTube and he was just walking around a field. And all of a sudden, this just giant golden dude on a big golden horse just runs over to him and just jabs him once and dead 
but it's one of those things where it's like he didn't know that's supposed to be later in the game that you actually fight that guy. So he's just throwing himself at this dude. And like 30 plus times later, he finally kills him. So that's the thing about Souls games is like you can stray from the path and like go. You can go fight a mountain if you feel like it, even if you're level one. But it's going to take you a long time to realize what you're actually doing. Yeah, yeah, that's what in in my minimal experience, admittedly, with um, Demon Souls and now Elden Ring, uh, that's happened to me both times where I just kind of wandered, not knowing where I was going, and ended up in a spot that I was nowhere near prepared to be at at that point in the game, and didn't. There's no clues telling me that you know that wasn't the case, or if they were, they were very subtle, and so I didn't pick up on them. Would get frustrated, and it's like I'm going to end this session right now and then who knows if i'm ever going to feel like picking it back up again which is what happened with demon souls i do want to get back to it but i'll probably have to do it after elden ring um gets me back into this mode yeah for for a good contrast this is like a five-year-old wandering into the middle of wrestlemania and (laughs) and hulk hogan just like picks him up and just slams him into the ground and everyone's cheering that's what that's what all the (laughs) games are like that's what every single one of them are like. Yeah. And then that five-year-old just gets back up and he's like, all right, we're doing this again until I get it. And right, right. <laughs> and, and it's all because the, the, the five-year-old, instead of, you know, waddling over to the kindergarten entrance, accidentally wandered onto a bus that took him to WrestleMania. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. That's what all these games are like. But honestly, it's built for a specific kind of person. Like, you got to be... You got to be at least a little bit of a glutton for punishment to play any kind of Souls game. That, or at least appreciate a good challenge. For sure. So, Richard, I, I guess kind of the, the big question in all of this is, you know, does does that difficulty standard make playing these games more enjoyable, less enjoyable, or does it really have any significant effect on the actual, you know, enjoyment that you can get from them? That is a good question, and honestly, it just depends on the type of player you are, because I know people that just live to get mad at video games. A very good example of that is League of Legends. I don't know if you know anyone who plays League of Legends, but uh, there was a guy a couple years ago I was rooming with, and he was in the middle of a he was in the middle of a game, and uh, in the ranked system for League, it's like you have x amount of points and you have to keep winning matches to get more points and then once you get high enough you play like three promo games you win two out of three you get promoted to the next rank he was in uh one of his promos he was a one-to-one and he lost and this guy just straight up just punches his laptop so hard that his fist almost comes out the back of the screen and he just had ended up having to toss it. It was absolutely crazy. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah. But I mean, there are people that just live to get mad at things. And honestly, they end up like taking it out in video games. Ah, crap. My phone's going off. And so Richard took a call from his father who had accidentally called in the middle of the podcast to see how his day was going. Anyways, back to difficult video games. There are literally just some people that just like live to be angry at something and they end up taking everything out on video games. That's why you so have so many angry gamers, honestly, like 
there's so many people that play online where all they do is they just scream and rage and get mad and then they get off and then they're like man that was so much fun i can't wait to do it all again tomorrow <laughs> who needs to pay for therapy when you can pay uh 60 well 70 dollars for the new call of duty every year yeah exactly an interesting point there uh, apparently this next year they're going to be skipping a year and waiting until 2023 for the next call of duty I I saw well okay I think I actually saw that they're skipping the 2023 release. Oh okay. So I think they do have one in the can for probably this November. Uh but I think it's the next one they're skipping if I if I read that correctly. Yeah, that would make sense, but honestly I'm okay with them skipping a year cuz I'm so sick of them. It honest honest to god Call of Duty is like one of the most unashamed copy and paste the engine into every subsequent game and tweak one thing. And then you market it as something brand spanking new and they just make millions of dollars. Yeah. I, uh, to be honest, I, so I beat the most recent release uh, the campaign. Uh, I still am a unicorn who loves playing campaigns in video games and uh, primarily play that and, and not do a whole lot of multiplayer. And so I beat that one. Uh, it just was such a strain just now trying to think of what the name of, of that release was. Do you, do you know what it was? God, I haven't kept up on a COD release in years. I can look <laughs> it, was it up real quick. Call of Duty Vanguard. Oh, and it, okay. it took me pretty much the entire time you were talking to, to come up with that. Yeah, see, just looking it up right now. Audience rating summary, two stars. That's how you know that, that they're doing so well. But here's the thing. That's 6,563 people. So no matter how crappy Call of Duty is, they're still going to have that dedicated fan base that just goes and gives them money for no reason other than, ooh, new Call of Duty. Yep, yep, exactly. Now, I hate to, ma I hate to make this comparison, but unfortunately, in recent years, Nintendo's kind of become that way about Mario. I'm not talking Mario Odyssey. Mario Odyssey was an absolute fantastic game, but like New Super Mario Brothers, New Super Mario Brothers Wii, New Super Mario Brothers Wii U, then New Super Mario Brothers U Deluxe for the Switch. It's literally the same game. Yep. Yeah, it's when you build a brand like that that people admire it and recognize as something that they enjoy you get to kind of coast a little bit. And I think that uh, those are two examples of companies doing that for sure. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Richard, uh, that was a great conversation that navigated from Elden Ring into difficult video games, into companies scamming us. And I really appreciated every minute of it. That's what we do here. No nothing makes sense and everything is random. <laughs> uh we'll say hi to your dad for me when you give him a call back uh and let's uh let's take a quick break and then once we get back we'll jump into the build a batman conversation uh with isaac all right welcome back to the waiting in the sky podcast with tj starman it's time for batman uh, the new movie is coming out. If you're listening to this episode on release, then it comes out tomorrow slash tonight. Um, or if you're listening to it later, then you may have already seen it, in which case, hope it was good. Uh, but to tie into the release of The Batman, uh, I thought it'd be a good excuse to talk about 
incorporating different elements of each film depiction of Batman into one. What would be this kind of amalgamation of cinematic Batman? And, you know, what would it look like? And so I wanted to bring someone in who could really talk to the different traits that Batman has, the different iconic elements that the character possesses. And I brought Isaac, a.k.a. Infernal Griffin, on Twitch, YouTube, all of those gaming channels uh, to bring to bring his side of things into this conversation. So let's welcome in Isaac. How are you? Oh, thanks for having me, TJ. Seriously, uh, this has been a nice little out of the blue surprise, and it's nice to be here. I'm I'm super grateful for you to be here. It's great to have people that have uh, you know a meaningful voice to contribute to these conversations that I'm just coming up with because I think they'd be fun, and uh, being able to have these conversations instead of just monologuing to myself has been fantastic so far with this relaunch of the podcast. So uh, thank you again for being here. Um, Isaac, so we we met, I, I can't think of the exact year, but I know we met through um, Greek Life at, at UNO where we went to college. And so uh, it's been nice to kind of follow you from afar with what you've been doing with uh, with Twitch. And I know you're on YouTube as well um doing the streaming thing how has that uh just that journey been unfolding for you uh like most things it's slow it's steady it's a grind uh you got to put uh probably more effort into it than you think uh i know youtube i've been meaning to kind of get started i've only kind of just gotten that underway and it's taken really five years for me to get off my lazy backside to do that but uh twitch has been slow and steady it's difficult to say the least and i'm not gonna let anyone convince me otherwise because i think everything's difficult if you want to be successful at it and uh, sure. but yeah you're right about uh, the whole college thing i believe it was either fall of 11 or spring of 12 it it's been a long time yeah so that's yeah, it definitely has been a while <laughs> yeah well we also uh the other connection we have is we both did our time at gamestop Oh, uh, those days. <laughs> yes, the uh, very formative experience of uh, more or less ripping people off. Yeah, if only if only we would have gotten in on the stock game in January of last year, then we could have turned the favor. <laughs> yeah, yep. you didn't cash in on your stock option. Oh, no, I, I don't even. <laughs> uh. So uh, so uh, what's your what's your background with Batman? What kind of perspective are you, are you coming into this conversation with? Uh, I've had a very limited, I've got very limited, uh, but still insightful looks into the comics, but not as deep as someone obviously much older or more committed to it. But I'm very familiar with the film, uh, the animated series, uh, and a lot, obviously, of the gaming side as well. And just the portrayals from that angle. But uh, since most of it's going to be focused on the films today, I've pretty much been refreshing myself a little bit, at least with the older films, considering they came kind of came out when we were kind of growing up. So we didn't always catch all the finer details when we're kids. So, yeah, yeah. And I, I kind of did the same thing to refresh my my memory of some of those older those older movies. And, you know, you touched on it there. I, I definitely wanted to keep this focused on the films themselves um, to tie into, you know, the expectations that we have for Robert Pattinson as Batman. But you made 
a very good point that there is a lot of Batman out there. And so there's a lot to pull from and kind of the compromise we, we decided, um, you know, ahead of recording is to include a wild card option. Um, and I'll, and I'll go into, well, let's just go into the full details of how we're going to do this. So this build a Batman concept, we are going to break down the Batman character into some of the, the most important elements. And what we decided on are uh, the Bruce Wayne side of things, the costume, detective skills, physicality, gadgets, the Batmobile, the voice, a villain, and then as a bonus round, uh, the Alfred. And so those are all elements that we thought kind of encompassed what this Batman character is as a whole. And so we will choose one element, uh, well, one uh, depiction of the character as that element. So if I wanted to choose an Alfred, I could choose Sir Michael Caine. <laughs> Sir Michael Caine, indeed. So we, uh, <laughs> we're we going to try and keep it to the movies. We also don't want any particular depiction to dominate the conversation. So we also had the internal rule of limiting it to only three per version. But what we decided on uh, as well as an interesting element to throw in there is, is the one wild card choice. And so that wild card choice for any of these traits, you can choose a depiction outside of the movies. So if you want to go with uh, the animated series, um, Batman Beyond, even, you know, any of the animated movies or the video games, uh, which we both know well, that is totally on the table for one trait and one trait only. Isaac, do you have any questions before we get into it? Uh, I think we've got this well covered. Let's get this rigor rolling down the road. All right. Bad signals in the air. Let's ride. Uh, let's go one by one. So let's start with Bruce Wayne, you know, the man behind the mask. I uh, this might be off the wall and maybe a little bit controversial, but I'm very confident in this answer, which is I went George Clooney. George Clooney is Bruce Wayne. And it makes a lot of sense, really, even if you look at Clooney's real personality or at least how people have depicted George Clooney over the years. He's been kind of the typical alpha of alpha males when it comes to looks, when it comes to money. Clooney makes a lot of sense when it comes to that. So, yeah, uh, yeah. but I personally decided to go with Michael Keaton. Michael Keaton kind of set the more modern standard. It was in the first Batman film alongside Jack Nicholson and a few other uh, great, great castings of the, I believe it was late 80s, if I remember right. Uh, yep, 1989. That's right. But Keaton set the standard. He was a very, very good Bruce Wayne. Obviously cleaned up real nice. But it just, you almost have to go with the standard for that. And did they really exceed it, meet it, where'd it go? It, mm. I found it hard. Uh, and even with some of the more limited uh, Batman runs between Val Kilmer and George Clooney, and even between Christian Bale and Ben Affleck, it's hard for them to kind of meet that original suave, if you will. Yeah, I, I see where you're coming from with that. And I think for me, it came down to, I thought Keaton was a candidate here. Uh, I also would have had Bale as a candidate here, in my opinion. Um, but I think what sold me is just how effortless Clooney was. And I think, like you hit on it, you know, it's, it's a lot of himself in that portion of, uh, of his Bruce Wayne uh, in Batman and Robin. And so that's what sold me on it. It was effortless. It was natural. He's just so damn charming. 
that that that's yep. my Bruce Wayne. Yep. Yeah, I, and especially if you look at the time period, what was he doing at the time? He was the top doctor on ER yep. at the time. So it was real easy for that charm and that suave, that bravado. It was such an easy carryover for him. Yeah, so it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, th- I think a couple of, of reasonable choices there, uh, despite mm-hmm. what uh, some people might think about the Clooney choice. Uh, so let's move over to, to costume. Isaac, where'd you land uh, on the costume? Uh, on the costume, I definitely will have to go uh, Ben Affleck's costume, and I think we might have some agreement here. I don't, I'm not entirely sure, but it fit at least from a comic depiction. It fit from really just a functionality perspective. It doesn't look like you're just kind of going in and either just with like a cloth. It doesn't look like it's just shiny rubber. It actually looked like there was some resistance underneath but it also looked clean it looked sleek it looked like you could move in it yeah yeah i think that's key i think it Mm -hmm. it it kind of matches more of the comic origin without trying to adapt too much to the real world and and this is the the choice i chose as well uh i think the batfleck costume is great i i love the way that it um they do there's a couple of variations in the movies that he appeared in but i really like the gray and black color scheme that kind of goes back to like the animated series uh version and the only thing i think you mentioned this as well before recording but the the logo itself for that costume it's like big and blown out uh i'm not the biggest fan of that logo i think there's some you know sleeker designs that really pull off the batman look a lot better but overall that costume i think it, it, it works the best for me yeah most definitely it's that symbol was just a little bit just and especially if you look into the comics and everything else the symbol was never just boom in your face that where that one is but at the same time where else are you really gonna go are you really gonna go the nipple suit of george Clooney? no uh are you gonna go some of the basic old and definitely looks like it's more rubber suits of kilmer and keaton even though they're very iconic so shiny the, yeah it's the, the problem there is it's shiny or yeah. are you gonna go with the freaking basically a soldier suit of christian bale it's yeah. just i think the Batflick suit kind of meshed the best of everything where it kind of it definitely stayed true to the origin and then it doesn't it obviously it wasn't shiny because it's Batman from the shadows. Don't want to be seen. Mm-hmm. And then it doesn't, it's not big and bulky. Like it'd be heavy to lug around. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I think we're in pretty solid agreement on the costume with Batfleck moving into detective skills. I, this is going to be the first appearance of a wild card choice. Uh, so this is where I use my wild card and I'm going to go with Batman from the telltale series. And uh, you know, the reasoning behind that is, those games are just built entirely around Batman as a detective. You are investigating crime scenes. You're following up with conversations and, and sprinkling in details that you have picked up. And I think it's a nice depiction of, of Batman as a detective. And I, I, and I wanted to really come in with a creative wildcard choice too. And so I think this is a really good fit from that perspective. Where did you yeah, go but, with it? Uh, I, I stuck with Batfleck here. I stuck with Ben Affleck's Batman. Uh, from the depiction in uh, Batman versus Superman, as well as Justice League, you actually do see a lot of 
the Bruce Wayne in the swanky clothes at these little galas just that are he's totally there undercover as Batman investigating just kind of veering off into the little side halls like he's not supposed to and <laughs> picking and putting together all the clues and figuring out oh you're this person oh this is this person oh yeah a you little a little it bond-esque uh, yeah very ones. very very bond-esque and it was kind of nice to see but uh i wish we would have gotten a chance to really see them develop that older batman a bit more but alas, we've we're we're moving on to a new casting, and I'm hoping we can see some, a bit more detective work than just raw action. Yeah, yeah, we'll see. I I know the the Flash movie is gonna um, be bringing in some multiverse chaos, uh, a la Spider Man No Way Home. So, uh, you know, we might see Keaton, Affleck, who knows how many other Batman uh, show up again. <laughs> the myriad of uh the myriad of uh oh what are those cameos there it is Found yep. The word. yep all the cameos all the time um physicality and so to kind of define this a little bit both the actual you know physique of the character and also like the martial arts aspect of you know hand-to-hand combat um you know running and gliding you know jumping on rooftops all those elements of Batman kind of tied into one uh, trait here. Who did you uh, go with for physicality? I definitely took the Christian Bale route here. Uh, I, it's definitely low hanging fruit. If you really think about it, it's the first film starts with him training with the league of assassins. So it's very hard to not just look at that immediately and just be like, Oh, boom, easy choice. It, it, it kind of is. Because it's it's really the only Batman film that I can remember where you actually see him training in those particular art forms, not only in the first film, but every film he's in, he's always practicing on the uh, wooden, I don't know if they're dummies or what in the world they are, but it's got all the multiple limbs. You see him training on those a few times. And then, of course, you have the Bane breaks Batman's back and the Dark Knight Returns. And then coming back from that, it's and just the his build that he did for that. And Christian Bale as an actor is notorious for this, mm-hmm. being able just to change how he looks on a dime. It seems like for whatever role he's in, and he was always kind of that peak condition, and it always seemed like he was never out of place. Didn't seem like he was uncomfortable when he was doing, if he was doing the stunts. I don't know if he, I don't remember if he was or not, but it didn't look like. If he was, it would be out of place. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a very strong argument to go with Bale there. I, I, I actually didn't think about any other option besides Batfleck with this one. It seemed pretty obvious uh, to me, be, just because you know he's a, he's a little bigger, he's bulkier, um, comes across as more like physically powerful than some of these other depictions of Batman, um, and so where Bale does show off a lot of just kind of you know like agility endurance stamina those types of things throughout his trilogy i think the emphasis on power was clearly there for the the snyder verse version of batman and ben affleck um and i think that th- it's best shown off in that uh the warehouse scene in batman versus superman um and that scene is awesome it was pretty much iconic from release the way that uh, Batman just actually goes into this place and just wrecks shop 
in a way that has been in every, you know, superhero nerds head for years. And they, they finally put it on screen. Um, so I think uh, that warehouse scene did a lot of the heavy lifting and making that an obvious choice for me. That, that actually makes sense that that scene did definitely tickle my nerd jollies on that one. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, speaking of tickling nerd jollies, um, gadgets. Great segue. I, I'm, I'm full of great segues uh, this episode, Isaac. <laughs> so gadgets, uh, a key element of Batman for sure. Um, you know, notoriously the utility belt is a, a key component of the, the Batman costume. Um, so gadgets, I went with Bale here. I think that uh, really what sold me on this was that uh, Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy is very much like set in the real world. And so everything's tied into some sort of grounded reality. And I think this is what made these gadgets shine a bit because like they're they seem so realistic. You don't have that built in doubt of like, well, that that type of thing can never exist. Like it actually probably already exists. And, you know, the Batman Begins was in 2006. So yeah, these things, pretty much everything in that movie probably exists at this point, which is cool. Um, I think one of the the most notable things is from I think it's Batman Begins, where where they um they tap into like cell phones and they're tracking pretty much the entire city. And uh, Morgan Freeman as as Lucius Fox is is helping Batman um, track down a target. And I just remember that like that moment is in my brain as just this huge highlight of of what. Wayne, as it Wayne Enterprises in that uh, universe is able to do with this technology, and so that that stood out to me, and that definitely makes sense. I, I come back to I believe it's a scene in Dark Knight where he goes overseas and he has you know just a basic rifle scope to kind of see where he's going and ends up using I believe a grapple and a parachute mm-hmm. to go from the top of a crane into a building. It makes a lot of sense. I'm going with my wild card here uh, because I believe gadgets shine the most in the Arkham series video games, most more than anything else. The ability to use not only just the regular Batarang, but a remote controlled Batarang, uh, explosive gel, uh, the grapple, and being able to glide across the environment. You needed your gadgets to complete the game. It was not just, oh, I'm Batman, I'm going to go around, I'm going to beat people up, and it's a linear story, and blah, 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 blah. No, it's very much an RPG. You play your style, with a few exceptions on boss fights, but you can play your style, whether it's going in and actually being the physical Batman, or using all your different gadgets just to mollywop anybody that got in your way. (laughs) Yeah, no, that definitely, I think gadgets play a huge role in those games and, and are a, a big reason why you feel like Batman when you're playing is because you, you have this background information of, you know, how important Batman's gadgets are to what he does. And you get to operate those firsthand. Like even the way that you have to like detect a signal by using the, the thumbsticks, right? Like mm-hmm. you, it, you feel like you're actually using those gadgets. And so that, I think that's a really good, choice for your wild card because you get to have that interactive element to it um so i think it's a it's a great fit and you definitely don't necessarily see this in the films or a few other ones but the utilization of the cowls uh gadgets that are built into it 
you don't see that as much in the films. I think you see it a little bit in Batman versus Superman and Justice League and the Snyderverse, but you don't see it as much out really outside of the video games to use, you know, using a heartbeat detector or a thermal vision or something like that. Yeah, no, definitely. That's another good point for sure. Uh, so arguably Batman's greatest gadget is the Batmobile. Where uh, did you end up going with uh, for your, your vehicle of choice? And this was just a guilty pleasure of mine. I'm, I'm very much into uh, the biggest. isn't always the best, but it's oftentimes the coolest in my book. Uh, and I went with Christian Bale's very, very unique, basically a mobile, extremely mobile, uh, oh, like an anti-personnel type of basically a tank that it was and that just rolling down the streets of Gotham and just being at the tires, just being able to roll on themselves and not actually, you know, break an axle or just go over cars and not care. <laughs> and it was just the rumble down the street. and just like, Oh, there's Batman. Uh Oh, I'm getting out of the way. Yeah, no, it's, I, I think the vehicle is called a tumbler. If I remember that correctly, which makes a lot of sense because it, yep. Thinking back to those movies, there's those iconic like highway scenes with the Batmobile, like in these chases, just barreling through pretty much everything like <laughs> a tank would. And so mm-hmm. I can't I can't argue with that choice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, as much goodwill as I got from, um, you know, realism with my choice of gadgets, uh, I think I kind of threw that out the window and spent it on uh, on this choice because I went Keaton with the Batmobile. And so it's definitely not the most realistic or like, you know, you're not going to get the most utility out of this version of the Batmobile, but boy, does it have an iconic look to it. Uh, I just imagine like the Hot Wheels version of this car all the time uh, because I had this. (laughs) And so I I had to go with it. It makes, it makes sense. It is very nostalgic. I totally forgot about the Hot Wheels car. I totally forgot about that. I wow, <laughs> that is definitely a true nostalgia bait, but completely understandable choice. <laughs> and I think there, there's got to be a Hot Wheels collection of like all Batmobile designs at this point. Like I'm sure that exists. It, it would be a disgrace it. if there wasn't. <laughs> it's I, I might have to check that out later and see if that's a you know a reasonably priced thing that I could. <laughs> I doubt that it is or that mm. I should. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, hey, Isaac. Yeah. I'm Batman. Okay, I'm not really Batman. But <laughs> the I'm voice, Batman. the voice of Batman <laughs> mm-hmm. is such a crucial element to this depiction. Mm-hmm. You know, to the it's been, you know, teased. There was some... I think it's in Neighbors. Is that the, the Seth Rogen, Zac Efron movie where the they're clearly two generations and they're debating like who does who's the who's batman and they're debating the the michael keaton or whatever yeah yeah they're debating michael keaton and christian bale and then Mm -hmm. they're they just go back and forth with the voices and it's like one seth rogan's like (laughs) oh it's 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 michael keaton it's i'm batman and then Mm -hmm. zach efron's like just so gravelly bale voice like i'm batman Mm -hmm. and they just go back Mm -hmm. and forth it's i think of that scene uh whenever i think about batman voices i totally forgot about that scene that scene is hilarious it is it is and so what's interesting here um i think probably the most slam dunk option either of us could have gone with is off the table already for both of us because we've already used our wild card choice and so Mm -hmm. we can't go with kevin conroy here 
Which as would have been much obvious. as I want to, because Conroy's voice in that role is iconic. Yes. You, you, you want to talk about something that everyone will recognize. If you played Kevin Conroy's voice completely randomly to a stranger, you'd be like, who is that? I guarantee most of them would say Batman. Yeah. They, they, they might not know it's Kevin Conroy, but they would know it's Batman. Absolutely. Uh, Batman the Animated Series, um, Into the Justice League Animated Series, uh, many of the movies, the mm-hmm. the Arkham series as a whole. So crossing mm-hmm. um, different crossing, medias. You know, crossing into video games and then Batman Beyond when he's old man Bruce. It's, it's yeah, it, he's he's had that role for 30 years. And that's just absolutely bonkers. It is. It's iconic. So I think mm-hmm. we both kind of made the choice without even talking about it, but to, mm-hmm. you know, respectfully acknowledge the greatness of Kevin Conroy, but keep things a little more interesting and, and, and try and choose from another option. Um, mm-hmm. So I did end up going with Bale for the voice because the just the gravelly tone, it, it works for me. And that, mm-hmm. It got me. Yeah, and, and it definitely makes sense. Uh, I personally, I was actually torn, oddly enough, between Keaton and Bale. Because, again, you got Keaton setting the standard. But then you, you, I also had to look at, okay, well, who changes their voice the most in this? Mm-hmm. Right? And that's, I don't think Keaton really changes his too terribly much. There's enough of a difference. Kilmer does the same thing. George Clooney didn't do it at all. <laughs> Uh, that was, that was just, uh, anybody could pick Clooney out if if they really tried. It's just like, dude, you didn't even make an effort. What the heck? And then you move on to Bales, which is obviously that deep, gravelly, very much a change from his normal voice. You wouldn't be able to tell. And then even, uh, Batflex voice changes quite a bit as well. It's, it's really, really hard choice when you kind of get down into the nitty gritty of it and, uh, vocal tones and sounds and as someone who just kind of takes to mimicking people uh, a little naturally it's it's hard to really pick from this i almost have to agree with bale just because of the vocal dynamic change for where his voice sits as bruce wayne to where he gets down into that basement and just lets the rasp and the gravel just go yeah for his batman yeah, totally. And, and and what was the what was everyone's favorite thing to do after you know watching Batman Begins in the Dark Knight? Just boom, Batman. It, it, it's it's just so iconic for how that voice we kind of all think should sound. Yeah, for sure. I think it's a really strong point you make there about there being just such a dynamic shift in uh, Christian Bale's Bruce Wayne speaking and Christian Bale's Batman speaking. It is so it's you wouldn't necessarily be able to link it if you were existing in that universe and experience both those voices. And um, I think, yeah, you touched on it. Like as, as much as I uh, gave George Clooney credit for being a great Bruce Wayne, um, there was not much difference when he was Batman. Uh, there was literally no difference, actually. And mm-hmm. I, I think I would give an honorable mention to Ben Affleck here. Mm-hmm. Just because, so they very clearly with that depiction gave him like a voice changer or something like. So there's a like a mechanical digital element. Yes, to it. they did. Yeah, they. I, I forgot about that. It was like a collar. It was like right on his collar, right where his vocal cords sit. They had that little gadget there. Yeah, and I think that was a very creative way, like a very realistic, very Batman 
uh, way mm-hmm. to go about it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, we're, we're going to uh, go with the people who did it all natural. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Christian Bale runs away with it. Mm-hmm. And, and that uh, it is a very Batman way to approach it. And it actually makes sense for the older Batman depiction that we got out of Ben Affleck as well. Of course, yeah. I think um, I think we have a pretty solid Batman in place mm-hmm. with, with all, well, two pretty solid Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need someone for him to fight. We need a villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Batman uh, obviously has you know only Spider-Man could potentially rival Batman in terms of iconic uh, villains. Yep. Rogues gallery. That's the term I was looking for. Mm-hmm. And even then. Batman still, I think it's it's still an easy choice between the two. Um, mm-hmm. And so this was hard. This was a very hard decision to make. Um, despite all of the love that I have for the Joker as a character and also the depictions by both Nicholson and Ledger, I wanted to go a different direction. And so I ended up going with Killian Murphy's Scarecrow from Batman Begins. And I think what really sold me on this was just how terrifying some of those scenes with the hallucinations are in that movie. And just, I love that kind of psychoactive element to it that the character brings. And, and, you know, some of the affection I have for the character in general definitely is from the character's depiction in the Arkham games. But I I do think that it works in in that universe. And so I would go, I'd go with Scarecrow here. Where did you land on a villain? I, I had to go with the low hanging fruit here. I, and it's hard for me not to, even though I wanted to. I, I've got a couple of good honorable mentions, but I went with a low hanging fruit of Ledger's depiction of the Joker in his last role. He got so into it and he had such a brilliant portrayal of a villain that just didn't care. It, it was very much the true psychotic elements of the Joker. Like we didn't get to see the origin story, but the way he acted, the way he did things and just kind of seemed off the wall and unhinged and all of the, you'll never stop me, Batman type of things <laughs> that just kind of went down. It, it honestly, I don't think you could get a better live action depiction of what you would think would be the Joker from even from like the animated series or the games or the comics, it was that well done. Now I have to give an honorable mention to Tom Hardy's Bane did a very Mm -hmm. good job with that. And I have to give an honorable mention, oddly enough to Jim Carrey's Riddler. I loved Carrey's Riddler. I loved it just because I honestly just think Carrey's range when it comes to that just fit. Yeah. He was very composed as scientist Edward Nigma, and then he got his little brain drain machine, and the freaking psycho switch just flipped, and it was great. Yeah, I thought it just fit. But th- those are my two honorable mentions for that. I so I obviously you know I I couldn't and I, I would never try and argue that that Heath Ledger's Joker is an incorrect choice here. I think it, uh, it's amazing depiction of the character, and it was amazing performance in general and uh you know it's a shame that we lost him and, and he wasn't able to reprise the role in any way shape or form um the joker in general the depictions just amazing uh, i mean we had nicholson we had ledger 
We had, you know, potentially Mark Hamill in uh, either, you know, he, he worked across from Kevin Conroy in both animated series movies and in the Arkham series. Um, so, you know, arguably just as iconic as uh, the Joker as Kevin Conroy is as Batman. Mm-hmm. That would have been a totally reasonable option for a wild card choice as well. Mm-hmm. I think, can, can we also just take a step back? First of all, thank you for, for giving us the Batman Forever love with uh, <laughs> mentioning Jim Carrey. Yeah, yeah. We've been uh, just not acknowledging that movie basically this entire mm-hmm. segment. <laughs> and, and it's it's hard to acknowledge, and it's... I just... I, I still can't forgive them for the nipple suit. I really just can't. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. It's fair to hold a grudge on that one. But mm-hmm. let's also... Let's just acknowledge some of the the actors who have portrayed Batman villains, right? So you we've mentioned, you know... You, Heath Ledger, Tom Hardy, uh, Kelly Murphy, all, all of these, you know, prestigious actors. And then Jack we've also Nicholson, Liam Neeson, uh, of course, uh, yes. Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. There's oh, that's so a good transition many... piece. Because uh, yeah, Tommy so Lee Jones guys. is Two-Face uh, falling into this category. You know, we also have mm-hmm. Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy. We have yeah. Arnold as... Uh, Professor Freeze or Doctor Freeze, uh, uh, Mister Freeze, Mister yep. Freeze. Oh my gosh! So it's just, yeah, it's just names. it's he's Doctor Victor Freeze, but he goes by Mister Freeze, Freeze when he puts the when he puts the suit on. And wow, uh, Arnold's portrayal was interesting, <laughs> so interesting had... to say the least, and so many bad cold puns. Yep, yep. Uh, we uh, got quite the uh, the pool of characters to choose from for a, a Batman villain, uh, mm-hmm. to say the least. So I think we picked some good ones there. Mm-hmm. And then the bonus round, Isaac, what is, uh, well, so originally a little glimpse behind the curtain. I was thinking um, of making this a sidekick category as a bonus, but mm-hmm. really our, our options were just going to be what, like Chris O'Donnell and then Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I, was he a sidekick? In I, I really Dark Rises? I can't even really put Joseph Gordon Lovett. Really, the only option is uh, well, you had a you did have a Batgirl as well. I'm trying to remember who it was. Oh, Alicia uh, Silverstone. Yes, it was Alicia Silverstone. That's who it was. Uh, and uh, but if you're only picking between Chris O'Donnell and Alicia Silverstone, now granted, you could go with a wild card here as well. Yeah, because and you would almost be forced into that corner if you did. So yeah, I'm glad. Sure. I'm glad. You, I'm glad you didn't. I'm not yeah, glad. so glad I, you didn't. It seemed a little more fair to to go Alfred here. Um, so I I went again. This is I went more iconic uh, with this choice. And, you know, we actually had a, had a good conversation about kind of the, the archetypes that Alfred, the character of Alfred has fallen into. And, and we identified a couple of different uh, roles that he plays in, in the different depictions by the different mm-hmm. character actors. And so. Um, I chose Michael Goff, who played Alfred from 1989's Batman. Uh, he was also in Batman Returns, Batman Forever, and then the final role um, where Alfred passes away is in mm-hmm. Batman and Robin. Mm-hmm. And so I think for the longevity of, of that depiction of the character, for sure, um, that's a big point in his favor. But I also think that he kind of falls into the what I would dub the caretaker role of alfred where he really embodies like this is someone who is like a father figure to bruce and also he crosses paths with um you know chris o'donnell's dick grayson 
aka Robin, and then um, Barbara Gordon. Is, is I don't even know that she's Barbara Gordon because I think that she's related to Alfred in Batman and Robin. Yeah, she is. I I do remember that. I think they might have taken some creative liberties. With yeah, that. they she, must have. Was, and I just thought of that. She was Barbara Gordon, but I think they took a little bit of creative liberties and kind of they were all the Gordons were in the family tree of Alfred of Alfred Pennyworth. I don't know how, and it's something I really want to look <laughs> up and know for sure, but. Yeah, that, I think they, I think it was like Al- Uncle Alfred or something. Yeah, and I don't know maybe if that was just something that th- people have called people uncle or auntie on if they just know them they're not necessarily in the family but they've known them for forever. Yeah. I know that is I know that's a custom for some things as well. So it very well could also just be that, but it it, I, it wouldn't surprise me if it took a little bit of creative liberty with that as well, but that Michael Goff is a really good really solid choice for an alfred just because like you said the caretaker alfred then you have uh Sir michael kane as uh <laughs> kind of the advisor and moral compass alfred and then you had jeremy irons in the most recent films as the technician with a little bit of that moral compass as well mm-hmm like but you could tell like those two had had a relationship been together for a long time in the Batfleck depictions. Uh, I went with Michael Caine, uh, purely from the just all of the sage wisdom and advice. That to me, I, I always picture Alfred as Bruce's moral compass, as to you need to focus not only on your Batman crap, but you need to focus on being Bruce Wayne too. You you no. can't you can't slouch on either of those, and you see that early in Batman Begins when he's kind of undertaking his role as Batman almost too much and he's sleeping through board meetings and <laughs> you, it's like they're gonna figure this out if you keep showing up and sleeping at board meetings. Right. Yeah, I think I think that definitely makes a lot of sense. It it's a very reasonable answer. Mm-hmm. Um definitely that moral compass side that you touched on, uh, Michael Caine fits that to a T. And and I think that's it it's a really good point because I am I remember even like I think this might be in the comic version of the Injustice storyline where uh, obviously Batman and Superman are feuding in the Injustice storyline, but Batman, I think, like gets the gets souped up the way that they all get souped up in that storyline and then like just kick Superman's ass at one point because they got he's like, you're you're not you're not making good decisions. And so. That that stands out to me as like a shining moment of Alfred as as this moral compass, not just to Bruce and as Batman, but to like these heroes in general in the, in the larger DC universe. Mm-hmm. He's kind of always been that, for for lack of better terms, the man behind the curtain, <laughs> trying to keep all of these. He he was always trying to keep Batman and Robin and Batgirl and all of the iterations, trying to keep them on the straight and narrow. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the Justice League gets introduced. Like, oh crap! Here we go again. Now I've got this many more people I got to try and wrangle. But he's just one of those people that any of the Justice League individuals throughout the DC universe has been able to come to and get sage advice. Whether it's been Barry Allen, Clark Kent. Uh, it's always been more, more of the male characters that kind of do that, mainly because they're usually the ones that are a bit more hard-headed. 
but I, I know Wonder Woman has consulted Alfred a time or two. He does it's, have a have a interesting relationship with Selena Kyle's Catwoman. Yep, obviously yeah. through through Bruce and their relationship mm-hmm. too. So yeah, no, mm-hmm. definitely he has he has very good interactions with um, all the DC characters. Or, well, not all, but a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the heroes for sure. For sure. So that that wraps up our build a Batman. Let's let's recap our individual lists. So uh, Isaac. Why don't you start first and just run through all your answers for all of them? Okay, so Bruce Wayne, I had Michael Keaton, just setting the standard. Uh, costume was Ben Affleck. Detective skills stayed in the same realm with Ben Affleck. Uh, the physicality was Christian Bale. Gadgets was my wild card when I slipped into the Arkham Games version of Batman. The Batmobile was Christian Bale's. Uh, the voice just christian bale uh the villain was the joker just and i'm actually i want to elaborate more on that if i can right here because i didn't actually use this right here but no matter what timeline you see for batman there's always a joker you'll (laughs) never not have that and then alfred was sir michael kane awesome yeah no if i mean if i saw that version of batman on screen i i could hardly argue with what i was seeing um However, I did go a different direction. So with with my Bruce Wayne, I went George Clooney. It's going to be a crowd pleasing choice uh, for the costume. I went with Batfleck going to go detective skills. Uh, Telltale Batman who's going to be solving those cases for us. Uh, physicality. This was also Batfleck. I'm um, just going to be this powerhouse coming in and whooping everyone in a warehouse uh, gadgets. Christian Bale, that grounded version of the gadgets repertoire that Batman works with. Uh, the Batmobile, iconic Michael Keaton, Batman 89, Batmobile. The voice, we're going with Christian Bale. And then uh, villain, you're going to be facing off with Scarecrow from Batman Begins. And we're going to be just dealing with all of the effects of the hallucinogens in that one. And then uh, Michael Goff as Alfred is going to be standing by to assist as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm very satisfied with both those lists. I thought those turned out great. Yeah, I, I, there's really very not really much you'd really want to change there. Which is interesting because as, as much as the you know general audience loves to tear down some of these Batman depictions... Uh, there's clearly a lot of elements that are really well done that you can pull from. If we made pretty much two completely different versions of Batman that we would both be very interested in seeing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Definitely, definitely could. So a brand new version of Batman is going to be on screen. Uh, like I said, either tonight, tomorrow, if you're listening on release of this episode or it's already been out um, and you'll have to check it out if you've not yet. But Isaac, let's let's just kind of look at this through a crystal ball a little bit and let's try and predict what rotten Tomatoes scores this movie will get from the critics and from the audiences okay the the critics are obviously going to be the hardest part to judge here by far critics are usually i'd argue hypercritical of anything comic book related anything superhero related they're very, very scrutinizing. They're, I don't know if there's really any been, anything that has been greater than fresh from the critic standpoint when it comes to a comic book film. So it's really hard for me to go above that. 
I think it's just going to get into fresh. I think it's going to be about a 63 to 65% probably from the critics. I think that I think it'll be written well enough and everything will be realistic enough to please them. And then I think from the audience side of things, the audience is it, it's going to be hard. That's that's another hard one to judge because obviously we're coming off of the Nolan Bale trilogy. We're coming off of a short stint of Ben Affleck as Batman in the Snyderverse. Uh, it's depending on how crowds go in and what they're expecting, I think is going to dictate how that goes. But I have a hard time not seeing it with at least a 70 to 75% from the crowds. Yeah, I think I think those are reasonable predictions um i so when i i did this in the last episode for for uncharted and i predicted a a big chasm between the critic score and the audience score i said uh like a 38 for for critics and uh, a 62 for audience and uncharted actually was very well received by audiences so i'm going to try and learn from that a little bit if i can with this prediction Uh, but i think it'll be similar i think there will be a split and i think that the critics will be a little more harsh a little more critical, if you will. Um, and so I, but I do think there is enough here, particularly with the cast, um, to kind of entice critics to um, rate it a little bit higher. I think this cast in general, I know critics love great performances. And so when you have Robert Pattinson, you've got Zoe Kravitz, you've got Colin Farrell uh, as Penguin, Jeffrey Wright. Um, as Jim Gordon in this universe, uh, Paul Dano, I'm sure, is going to absolutely crush it with what is shaping up to be like a very creepy um, rendition of the Riddler. And so I think that might bump up the critics score a little bit, just this cast doing great at performances. So I would say maybe they'll land at like a 68% for the critics. Um, nice, like kind of solidly fresh but nothing that's blowing them away necessarily. It's not going to be like Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight uh, in terms of critical response. However, I think audiences are going are to love this. Um, I think it's shaping up to be something that's different from past versions of Batman. It's going to be, uh, you know, pardon the pun here, but, but fresh in the minds of audiences. Um, and so I think we're going to look at maybe like, a, I mean, Uncharted was in the 90s for audiences. So I... I think I'm going to go 90s for this too, uh, but maybe like a 92% for the audience score. Um, and that might be a little high, but you know, nerds, when they get something they like, they really let you know. That is very true. And I know I will definitely let my criticisms be heard about this film. It's one of the films I actually have been wanting to get to, uh, namely because like I'm not going to go in with an extremely high bar because I know the Nolan Batman films are going to be hard to top. It's going to be hard to top from a filmmaking perspective, from a writing perspective, but I want to see how well they do. And I really want to see how well Robert Pattinson and Andy Serkis do as our Batman, Bruce Wayne and Alfred. I really want to see that relationship. I think if that relationship is good and the writing and the depiction of the other characters is good, I don't see a reason why nerds won't be in love with this and it won't be up in the 90s for the audience and almost in the 70s i'd argue from the critics but it, again it's it's kind of an interesting time in filmmaking it's an interesting time in depictions and i guess we're just gonna have to see yep yep absolutely and i completely spaced on andy circus we, we were talking about this before recording too like i forget that he's in this movie and so that's just another uh you know 
big power hitter that's in this cast. So uh, mm-hmm. I am going to be checking this out um, as soon as I can. And I will be definitely putting out a review episode of the podcast. Uh, it's going to be this coming Monday. So the Monday after the release of the Batman, make sure to uh, check that out. And uh, you will have this piece here with our predictions. And then you'll get the review piece on the back end as well. Isaac, this was so much fun. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining me to, to talk Batman. Um, we're going to have to have you back, obviously, to get into video games. Um, so I hope you're, you're geared up and, and you'll be ready for that. Oh, I'm always geared up. And honestly, most topics, uh, I have at least a mild knowledge of a lot of different things. So feel free to reach out and dang near anything and be happy to give my two cents. Sounds good. Yeah, we'll definitely make that happen. Um, Isaac, before we wrap this up, I want to give you a chance to to plug anything that uh, you've got coming up. Uh, well, uh, after the recording today and uh, most of the time, I us- you'll usually catch me streaming on Twitch under the Infernal Griffin tag. Uh, it's most mostly I'm a weekend warrior anymore uh, just because I do work a lot. Uh, but I'm also working on getting a YouTube footprint established as well, also under Infernal Griffin. Uh, the link is obviously going to be a little different, but if you search for that name, you should be able to find me. And you can find me under Infernal Griffin on uh, Facebook, on Hover, Twitter, Instagram, all the socials. I've got it all under the same thing. Uh, lots of video games that I'm playing through. I've got a very, very uh, ambitious list for the year that i'm nowhere near where i want to be in terms of completion so there's gonna be a lot of fun to be had uh, a lot of shenanigans afoot and uh (laughs) hopefully get into maybe a few film reviews on some of the new stuff coming out because uh, i missed i missed the uh no way home parade on that but uh i'm definitely looking forward to the batman and a few other uh film releases this year so happy to try and get that in there too yeah, it sounds like a lot to look forward to. Um, definitely make sure you are following Isaac and, and check out all of that that great content. Um, but thank you again, Isaac. I really appreciate you being here. Um, we'll see you again soon, I'm, I'm sure. I hope to be back soon. So thank you very much for having me. Of course. Welcome back from our break. I am very excited to move into our next segment, which is going to be bringing us back to the uh you know not always the best place to be which is the chicago bears fandom uh especially this last season it was there were some painful moments but there's been some change and we're at that time of year where there's the eternal optimism and i am gonna just dive right into it um but i wanted to bring in someone who is has a lot more of that expertise of the nfl draft because we are officially in nfl draft season At the time of this episode's release, the NFL Combine is going on in Indianapolis. And so it just seemed fitting to bring in NFL draft analyst Jacob Infante to the Waiting in the Sky podcast. Jacob, thank you so much for being here. How's it going today? Yeah, I appreciate you having me, TJ. Uh, It's been pretty good. I'm uh, I'm sure as you can tell, I'm I'm in the car right now. And we've had, you know, quite a bit of... (laughs) path getting here to be able to talk but i'm glad that we're finally here and i'm glad that we're able to uh to work this out and talk some nfl draft yeah absolutely uh and i've had kind of a running theme throughout this episode where i've been making some cringy but clever segues and so you know talking about long difficult paths and the nfl draft seems to go hand in hand wouldn't you say (laughs) 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, that, that's very good segue, by the way. I, I like that a lot. But uh, thank you, yeah, thank you. Yeah, no, it, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a long path for the players and for us as you know fans and all that. So uh, I, I'm sure it'll be well worth it down the line. But we're in that weird period where, like, okay, free agency hasn't started. The draft is still a few months away. So might might as well kick off some draft talk to uh, you know kind of kill the time, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. And so Jacob is um, a, a writer and, like I said, an NFL draft analyst that I have connected with through uh, Windy City Gridiron. So if you're not familiar, uh, I do manage a couple of the social media accounts for Windy City Gridiron, uh, providing some absolutely amazing content on the Chicago Bears. So if you're not already following, make sure you do so. Um, and Jacob is one of the amazing contributors on that team, um, putting out amazing work in uh, written form, also on podcasts. So, Jacob, it's it's great to have you here and to have you bring in some of that expertise to the this podcast. Yeah, of course. I mean, I appreciate you having me on. I mean, you've been doing great work here at WCG. So uh, when, when we got in contact here to figure this out, I was like, yeah, OK, yeah, I definitely want to you know, be able to help out wherever I can. Yeah, and so I, I think we have to have to start with the obvious, and that's the big changes that the Bears have made this offseason. Um, so they they did go out and uh, just really hit the reset button by bringing in new GM Ryan Poles, who also brought with him assistant GM Ian Cunningham to the front office, and then uh, Matt Eberflus was brought in as the Bears' new head coach and brought with him an entirely new coaching staff. I just want to start off, Jacob, if you want to share your kind of general take on, on those moves and where the Bears are positioned moving forward. Yeah, so I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, obviously, whenever there's a new coach on uh, a new GM, things are going to look bright in comparison because, uh, you know, a lot of people have been pushing for uh, Pace and Nagy to be gone for, you know, a while. I mean, I'm of the opinion they should have moved on last offseason, but regardless, they're here. And we're here now as Bears fans, and we have a new GM and new head coach, and I'm excited. I mean, I I can't lie and say that a defensive-minded head coach wasn't my first choice necessarily, but I do like the uh, leadership ability and personality that Matt Eberflus brings. I think that he's a sound defensive coach who should be able to uh, truly lead and be a strong uh, factor in the in the locker room. So I'm definitely encouraged to see what happens. I mean, obviously with these first time head coaches and GMs, you know, it can be a little unpredictable. You don't know necessarily what you're going to get, but I'm confident. And Ryan Poles coming from, you know, such a strong organization like the chiefs is certainly encouraging. And I, from, from my understanding, he's been a key He's been a key factor in, where, why the Chiefs are where they are right now. So uh, I'm excited. I think that change was necessary, and I'm definitely uh, I'm looking forward to see what the new regime can do. Yeah, absolutely. I, I kind of was eyeing those uh, offensive-minded head coaches as well. Um, in particular, I, I was on the Brian Dable train. Um, so yeah. it was a little bit of a shock to see the Bears go defense with the head coaching position, but you know, only time is going to tell how, how these hiring decisions will play out. So for now, we're going to, you know, jump on board and offer support for these guys and, and hope they can um, complete a quick turnaround for, for the bears. 
yeah, no, like that's and that's the fun part about whenever a move is made is because you're always uh, to an extent always optimistic about it. So uh, th- this is the fun part. Uh, I'm hoping there's going to be more fun down the line where you know we actually uh, see some wins as Bears fans coming our team's way. But uh, time will tell. Time will tell, and it's just good to uh, keep an open mind and be hopeful for the future. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a playoff win would be nice too, but I know that's asking a lot. <laughs> so yeah, it's been too long since we've had one of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so Jacob, I, I was wondering if you can kind of highlight some of the areas that you see as the Bears' biggest needs right now. Obviously, before the draft, we also have the free agency period, so that's going to shift a little bit. But as of right now, what are some of the, the draft needs that you see for the Bears? Yeah, as of right now, I think that the three biggest needs are, in no order, I'd say wide receiver, cornerback, and uh, center. I think that those are the biggest needs on the roster right now. At receiver, you only have Darnell Mooney and Daz Newsome under contract. There's bound to be some sort of changing of the guard there. I don't know necessarily how aggressively they'll be in free agency, but I do expect them to consider a receiver early in the draft. And the same goes at corner. Uh, Jalen Johnson's the only proven capable starter at an NFL level. Uh, Kendall Vilder had a rough year. Duke Shelley wasn't necessarily great. Uh, Thomas Graham Jr. showed some promise, but he still has a small sample size. So you can't definitively say whether he's going to be good or not. And Artie Burns is a free agent. He was better than I expected him to be. But again, at this point, he's a high-end backup, not necessarily someone you want starting. So I think that secondary is going to need some improvement. And then center, Sam Mustafer didn't have a very good year either. And the Bears, at least in my opinion, I thought they made a mistake of not bringing in any form of competition, even though Mustafer was good to close out the 2020 season. That's such a small sample size. They they trusted that sample size so much and didn't really provide any actual competition. That's what they did at corner with Vildor and Shelley, and that's what they did at center with Mustafer. So I, th- I think those are the three biggest needs. There are a couple other positions that stand out. Uh, defensive linemen could be a defensive tackle specifically off ball linebacker and safety stand out as potential uh, needs and maybe offensive guard or offensive tackle, whatever they plan on doing with uh, Tevin Jenkins, Larry Borum, where they have those guys and what they do with James Daniels. So a lot of moving pieces for sure. A lot of different areas that the bears can uh, choose to consider in free agency in the draft this year. Yeah, definitely. I'm hearing essentially just a lot of needs. Yeah, <laughs> uh, is the condensed version of that answer, right? <laughs> so I, I wanted to, you know, try my hand at this because, you know, how hard could being an NFL GM really be, right? <laughs> so I, full disclosure, I, I'm not someone who uh, really digs into draft prospects all that often. Um, I, you know, let experts like yourself uh, do that and then I'll kind of tag along uh, when I get the chance to, to dive into some of those articles and videos and such. Um, but I, I did want to get into this mock draft simulator, um, because this is something that I, I really got a kick out of last year where I just did like countless amounts of mock drafts. Uh, not one, I think had Justin Fields going to the bears, but you know, (laughs) so I think for, for this exercise, it would be great if we could kind of go pick by pick, 
um, and I could explain my thought process to you with where I was I was heading with each selection, and, and then have you just kind of you know give us a little bit of commentary, critique my choices a little bit. How does that sound? Yeah, that sounds fun to me. I uh, I always like getting a chance to look over people's mock drafts and just uh, you know seeing what I think. So this should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, I, hopefully it is fun and not just me getting torn down and uh, you know put on <laughs> blast here. So <laughs> without further ado, let's let's jump into it. Uh, so Jacob, I I made the point that there is a lot of needs. Um, well, I you know reworded your point that there's a lot of needs on this team. And so I, I kind of went into this with the philosophy of trying to take as many shots as possible to, to fill as many of those needs as we can. And the best way to do that is by trading and trading back. So the Bears have their first pick in this year's draft at pick 39 in the second round uh, because of the Justin Fields trade last year that saw their first round pick going to the New York Giants. So, it, you know, I wanted to make the most out of that that pick there, and I thought I could, I could see some value in trading back. And then in this particular simulation, we see uh, Malik Willis, the quarterback out of Liberty, fall to that section right there at pick 39. And one of the quarterback needy teams just couldn't help themselves. And they, they wanted to give the Bears uh, some value to trade up to that position so that they could take Willis at that number 39 spot. And that was the Washington Commanders. And that, that's, they're the Commanders, right, Jacob? Yeah, yeah. So that's, <laughs> it, it's still weird to say, really, just because I think I've probably only said Washington Commanders like once or twice since they've been mm-hmm. renamed. And it's still kind of surreal to me to hear. But yeah, Washington Commanders, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that is uh, one of the first times I've said it out loud as well. Um, so they're, they're quarterback needy, um, and this this is the only time it's really going to stand out to me, um, kind of the storyline of the draft. But I think that that is one where Malik Willis falls, Washington got excited and decided to trade with the Bears. And so that trade looks like this. Washington is sending over pick number 42, pick number 73 and pick number 111 uh, in this draft in exchange for Chicago's pick number 39, pick 71, and a 2023 sixth-round pick. Essentially, the Bears are going to give up a 2023 sixth in order to acquire a uh, fourth-round pick in this draft, and then they drop two or three spaces in the second and third rounds. Any thoughts on this deal? Yeah, so I definitely like that. I think that moving down twice approach is honestly kind of underrated within that uh, draft sphere because you're able to pick up a fourth round pick, which the Bears currently don't have. And I think that, like we mentioned, with how many needs they have, it's very uh, crucial to have as much day two, day three capital as possible. So being able to stock up, I think, is a really good approach. So uh, I'm a fan of that trade for sure. Good to hear. So now the Bears are sitting at pick number 42 with their first choice in the 2022 draft. And pick 42 comes along, and you know what? I'm still not sold on the value here. Uh, so I think to myself, why not explore some more options and let's see if we can add a few more picks here while we're at it. So uh, get a call from Miami, and Miami is looking to send over pick number 50, pick 101, and then a fifth and seventh round pick in the 2023 draft in exchange for pick 42 
and one of the Bears' two fifth round picks of the 22nd draft, 2022 draft. Any thoughts on this deal? Yeah, I think this is another good one. I mean, and I feel like I'm, uh, I'll be repeating myself here, but I do feel like the more value you get, the better, especially in that you know, round three, round four. Uh, I think that's that might be the sweet spot in this draft because there are a handful of guys I can see with legitimate chance like NFL starters at the next level. And ultimately, that's what you want to get uh, out of that range. Guys, you know, contribute uh, in the starting lineup the best they can. Uh, I, again, I'm a fan of the double trade down. I know the Bears did that in uh, 2016, and they were still able to get Cody Whitehair. And then the Bears never did it again under Ryan Pace, which I'll never understand why they didn't do that. But regardless, I think it's a good strategy to have for sure. And uh, just moving back, I think, is able to maximize your uh, value and build a really well-rounded roster. For sure, yeah. And and we still don't know what Ryan Pohl's approach to the draft is going to be. Um, but in this situation with me in the driver's seat, I really just wanted to emphasize um, getting some more picks and and really getting some value in this draft to help the team restock and rebuild moving forward. So uh, the first pick for the Bears ends up moving back to pick number 50 overall. And it was a little tough uh, waiting that long. But when I looked at some of the options there, I felt like I, I was pretty comfortable with that decision. Uh, this first choice might upset some people that really want to see Justin Fields uh, get a shiny new toy in the form of a wide receiver to play with. However, I ended up going on the other side of the ball and went with uh, Darian Kendrick, cornerback out of Georgia. Any thoughts on, on that selection? I think that's good value at 50, honestly. I think that uh, you're looking in round two, there are going to be a handful of corners I think could realistically go that high, and Kendrick's definitely one of them. Uh, I think he brings a lot to the table. He's a very fluid athlete. He's coordinated, uh, loose hips. He's got good upfield acceleration, so he can defend deep if need be. Uh, and he's an intelligent guy who's got really good ball skills and tracks the ball down, uh, kind of like a wide receiver, I feel like. So there's a lot of upside with him there for sure. I think that he doesn't have the physicality, in my opinion, to go round one, but because of his athletic upside and what he brings to the table there uh he'd be a very good pick in round two and honestly a really good compliment to Jalen Johnson you know they're different uh skill sets different players and I feel like you get the best of both worlds with those two in your secondary so I'm a fan of that pick for sure and again I do understand if people want to go offense first but uh you just got to go with value here regardless of the uh, regardless of position and I think that Kendrick is great value fits a need plays a valuable position and just overall I think is a good player who should be able to start the league for years to come. Yeah, I, I definitely think that the Bears secondary this past season showed that it's in need of an influx of talent. So even if the Bears do decide to spend some money at cornerback in free agency, I think still using that draft value to add Kendrick here uh, would be a good way to to really solidify that group moving forward. And, you know, with Eberflus being a defensive-minded guy, I'm sure that the secondary struggles have not uh, gone over his head by any means. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, the Colts have done a good job of maximizing their, their output in some of their defensive backs. Uh, so I think that there's 
there's certainly room for improvement in Chicago secondary. So I, I wouldn't be opposed to uh, going corner in round two if the value's right. I mean, especially if you're able to move back uh, two times and be able to pick up some extra draft capital in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Looking at the whole picture here, that is definitely a consideration. I, uh, I now moving into the third round. Uh, so the Bears originally had the 71st choice here, but after the deals, they end up with the 73rd choice. And, uh, you know, looking at the options and what was available, I actually ended up doubling down on defense uh, with this pick. And I went with Chad Muma, uh, the linebacker out of Wyoming. Yeah, so I, I like that pick. I like Chad Muma a lot. I think he's a very good fit in this Eberflus kind of system that they have going on. Uh, when I watch Chad Muma, I see speed and relentlessness. And I think that those are two things that Eberflus loves in his linebackers or just his defenders in general. And you're watching a guy, Muma, he's like bigger. He's, I want to say 6'2", like 240 pounds. And he moves well for his size. He's a pretty fluid athlete and he's got really good closing speed. And when you get a guy who's that big, who's able to move in a straight line as fast as he does, he's able to deliver some hits. And, you know, Matt Eberflus has his uh, his hits acronym, so uh, kind of fitting that you're getting a hard hitter at linebacker there. Uh, and, and I know that you, you might end up upsetting some people going back-to-back defense, which, like, I understand. But also keep in mind, there's still free agency here. There's still opportunities to address the offensive line, to add receivers, what have you. So. I, I certainly wouldn't be mad with this approach by any means. I think the value for both of these picks has been really good. And I, I'd certainly be a fan of uh, Kendrick and Mumra as the first two picks. And I, mean, I think he's a good fit as a Mike linebacker alongside Roquan Smith as well. I think that he's the type of guy who can step in pretty early and make an impact for a defense. Yeah, I think the kind of the dream scenario with this pick is that you end up recreating what the Bears had with, uh, you know, Lovey Smith and uh, Brian Erlacher and Lance Briggs in the form of Matt Eberflus, Roquan Smith, and Chad Muma. That's the dream scenario. Obviously, that's lofty, lofty <laughs> goals. Um, but, you know, the, the connective tissue is there. Um, you could see some similar traits in both those guys. Uh, you mentioned it, the, the ability to cover the, cover the field and, and get to the ball quickly is something that Erlacher and Briggs were known for. And so if you're able to, you know, recreate a percentage of that, um, it could be great for this defense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are some similarities there. Uh, I, I do think that Erlacher is better in coverage than Muma is. I think he's still developing his uh, spatial awareness and zone. But uh, bigger athletic guys who can hit hard, uh, complemented with Lance, uh, Lance Briggs type. Uh, although I think Roquan's more athletic. But, you know, that same archetype of like shorter linebackers, uh, but still, you know, t- plenty of talented guys who are very technically sound, intelligent tacklers. So I'd definitely be a fan of that as the linebacking duo for, you know, hopefully for years to come in this scenario. Yep. That would, I, I think if that's how it ended up shaking out, uh, and as well as if, if the Bears were able to address some of those offensive positions of need uh, in free agency, that that would work out pretty well, at least through these first two picks. So I'm glad to hear you're on the same page. Yeah, absolutely. So moving along, uh, we were able to add a second third round pick here. And so at the end of the third round, pick number 101, 
I do have the Bears addressing the offensive line in the form of offensive tackle Abraham Lucas from Washington State. Um, The idea here, Jacob, is that this is a guy who, from what I've seen, uh, possesses a lot of, you know, like the size that you're looking for in in a true tackle, um, has some of that, you know, strength and power to him, um, a little bit of nasty that Ryan Poles has already commented on. Um, And so it seems like a guy that Ryan Poles might realistically give a look here. Uh, Anything to add to that? I like Abraham Lucas as a late value. So that's still technically late round three there at 101, you said it was? Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's really good value for Lucas, who I think is a top 100 player in this class right now. And I don't think enough people are talking about him because he had a really good 2020, but he came back uh, and he had a really good 2019 too. So there was a lot of buzz there. Uh, And... This year, he just hasn't been getting a lot of that buzz, but he's still a very good player. I mean, he's huge. I don't have it in front of me right now. I want to say he's like 6'6", like 320, something like that. And he's powerful, he's strong, and he's nasty at the point of attack. And he's the type of guy, once he gets his hands on you, it's very tough to break free from. So uh, there's a lot to like with him. He's an underrated athlete for his size. Keep in mind that, uh, you know, Mike Leach used to be the head coach at Washington state and they ran an air raid system. So you're dropping in pass protection a lot. And all these, you know, last two years, I want to say it was, uh, he didn't, you know, necessarily, uh, drop exclusively back into pass coverage. He was able to, uh, more or less diversify his skill set and help out as a run blocker as well. But just keeping in mind that extensive pass protection experience, I think there's a lot to like with Abraham Lucas. And the the real question is here, what you plan on doing with Tevin Jenkins and Larry Borum here, because Abraham Lucas projects best as a right tackle. Uh, so do you move one of Jenkins or Borum to guard? Who do you keep at left tackle? Uh, but ultimately, I'm a fan of just the process of getting as many linemen as possible and uh, working from there. Yeah, I agree. I think... I think I, I'm also in that same camp with I, my thought process here was just adding some talent to that group. Uh, I think this is another area. It was pretty obvious that the Bears had significant room for improvement at. So, yeah, you raised that important and interesting question, which is, you know, what kind of impact does this have on guys like Jenkins and Borum? I, I know that there are people who are not sold on Jenkins as a left tackle necessarily. Um, there are people who are not sold on what position Borum should be playing. Um, I think this offers flexibility. If Lucas comes out and is competitive right off the bat and kind of locks down a right tackle spot potentially, then maybe that gives you the option to move Borum into guard. Um, maybe it, it gives you the opportunity to have just a really quality swing tackle with upside um, behind your starters. Um, and, and I'm fine with either of those scenarios. Yeah, definitely. And some people projected Borum best as a guard anyway. So uh, I think that he could kick there. Uh, even Tevin could maybe kick into guard if need be. But ultimately, I'm glad you and I are on the same page. Like with this kind of a roster, we want to be able to uh, build as much offensive line talent as possible, uh, regardless of position. Because, I mean, you can teach new positions and while it's not necessarily ideal and you want to have everyone, you know, perfectly slotted in their natural positions. Uh, I think it's better to 
uh, just take great value at offensive line over reaching for someone just because they play at left tackle or right tackle or what have you. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so now we move on to the next pick, which is uh, pick number 117 in the fourth round. And, you know, I, I know people were excited that it finally got to offense. <laughs> and now I unfortunately have to backpack, backpedal back a little bit and go back <laughs> to the defensive side of the ball with this choice. I had to because, you know, Jacob, one of the biggest things that, well, two of the biggest things that have upset me over the last few years as a Bears fan is one, watching the revolving door of players next to Eddie Jackson at the second safety position. Yeah. And two, watching the revolving door that is Eddie Jackson at the safety position. <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to accomplish uh, two things with this pick, and that is lock down that safety position with a guy who is known for you know being able to make solid tackles um, and kind of bring that element to the secondary. And so I ended up going with uh, Bubba Bolden, who is the safety out of the University of Miami. Um, which obviously uh, does come with his own question marks um, dealing with some injury issues. But even with that considered, what, what do you make of this pick? I like that bubble Bolden pick a lot. I think that uh, if not for his injury history, I mean, I know for a fact that he suffered season ending injuries this past year. And in 2019, I'd have to go back and double check to see uh, what other injuries he's had. But I know for a fact that those two are there, but with, with that out of the way, I think that if bubble Bolden's healthy, he's pushing for like an early second round value in my opinion, because he's a big safety. He was like six, two, six, three, 200 pounds, got long arms. He's physical. He isn't afraid to, you know, charge downhill and put a lower the boom on someone, so to speak. And he can also move well in coverage too, for someone who's as big as he is. You know, sometimes you see the issue of, Oh, uh, you're a bigger safety. It's a little bit tougher to sink your hips and explode coming out of your brakes. That's not as much of an issue with Bolden. And I think he moves well for his size. And he's got that just that overall athletic ability to uh, just project as a quality safety at the next level. If he can stay healthy, that's the big thing with him. But if he can, you're looking at uh, you're looking at a big safety who's athletic, can move well. It's definitely a great fit alongside Eddie Jackson. You can definitely, uh, definitely work with that for sure. Yeah, and and I just realized I kind of buried the lead with this one too, Jacob. Because if you weren't so so much sold on the Bubba Bolden pick in general, um, how about if it was part of another trade back? Uh, so originally, Ooh. the Bears were sitting at uh, pick number one eleven that they had acquired from Washington here, and so what I ended up doing with this trade is. Packaged pick 111 with a 2023 fifth rounder now that we had accumulated um, some additional 2023 capital in that Miami deal. Yeah. Sent those over to Baltimore uh, in exchange for pick 117, which we used on Bolden here. Uh, in addition, also picked up another fourth round pick, number 138, a sixth round pick, number 194. And then a 2023 seventh rounder. Um, so with a little more context, uh, and then also just yeah. the, deal, <laughs> the deal of itself. Uh, thoughts on on a third trade back? Uh, you're speaking my language, TJ. I think that uh, I'm a big fan of just moving back and accumulating draft capital. And 
I like that concept. I like what you've done with these picks. I think that, again, like we've been saying, just with these, with this roster, with how many needs they have, it's just nice to be able to stockpile. And when you draft as efficiently as you know you'd like to, as I I believe you have so far, uh, I think you're really maximizing that uh, draft talent. So definitely a fan of that for sure. Yeah, and so that that was my third and final trade of the simulation. So just kind of recapping a little bit, we were able to ultimately send away five 2022 picks in exchange for eight 2022 picks. So uh, we're going to net three additional picks in the 2022 draft from that. And then also sent away just two 2023 picks in exchange for uh, three 2023 picks. So we're going to also net an additional pick in next year's draft as a result of these three trades. Yeah, and that's something that I don't think Ryan Pace kept in mind enough. Uh, I think just that future draft capital and that overall ability to consistently stockpile talent over the course of the couple of years there. Uh, I mean, and obviously he'd end up using future draft capital to move up for people and then just, you know, keep pushing back and pushing back. But eventually you're going to book, you're going to book yourself into a corner here. So I, I like the approach of being able to, pick up future draft picks and being able to uh, just go into the next season with a little bit more to work with in the draft. So I'm a fan of that approach for sure. And when you're as efficient in, in maximizing 2022 talent and you're still able to see some just overall net improvement at the 2023 value level, I think that's definitely encouraging. Yeah. And, and this all comes with the caveat, like, there's no way of really knowing how accurate the NFL mock draft database trade simulator is. Uh, but it, it seems like it's based off of, you know, what's pretty standardized as the trade value uh, chart now. Um, and, and so I was pretty satisfied with what I was able to do um, with these deals. So looking ahead to uh, now our second pick of the fourth round at number 138, Uh, I finally was able to find what I thought was some upside and some good value at the wide receiver position in the form of Kyle Phillips, who is a receiver out of UCLA. Uh, And this was a name that I came across recently. Um, You know, a colleague of ours at at Windy City Gridiron uh, uh, is EJ Snyder, who's another draft analyst there. And he uh, had some very nice things to say about Kyle Phillips and as a prospect. And so, you know, this might be a little bit of a reach is what I gather, but as someone who offers some some upside and some playmaking ability at the wide receiver position, uh, I thought it was worth the mid-round pick here. What do you have to add to that, Jacob? Yeah, so I'm admittedly someone who has to watch a little bit more of Kyle Phillips. Uh, I've only been able to like formally break down like a game or two of his at this stage. So I'm going to watch a little bit more of him over this pre-draft process, but from what I've seen, I do understand what people like from him. He's, he's a good athlete. He's got above average deep speed and he's the type of guy who can stretch the field pretty well. Uh, he's elusive after the catch. He plays tough. I know he's smaller. He's sub six foot and he's like 170 something pounds, but he plays hard and he, you know, fights hard for extra yardage and, He's you know, slippery in the open field. So I do understand why people like him for sure. And I think EJ compared him to Hunter Renfro. It was either EJ or someone in EJ's replies who compared him to Hunter Renfro recently, I want to say. And 
Uh, I can see it. I don't think Phillips is as technically sound as a route runner as Renfro was coming out of Clemson. But I think, you know, similar body types, similar athletic traits, similar uh, mentalities. So I, I do like that pick. I At this stage, I, I think that's a bit of a reach. But again, I still have a lot of work to do on him. So we could be looking at this like a month from now and I'm saying, oh, there's no chance Kyle Phillips is going to fall to 138. Uh, instead of me saying, oh, you know, 138 is a little bit steep. So we'll see what happens over the course of the process. But uh, I understand why people like him, and I'm excited to uh, do a little bit more breakdowns on him. Yeah, and it, it's also there's a little bit of a consideration of special teams value in this pick too, right? Because the Bears punt returner position in general is up in the air with Jakeem Grant, who was a pro bowler, but he is a free agent. This year, um, we also Tariq Cohen set out the whole year who had previously been a, a Pro Bowl uh, return man as well. Um, so it, it's hard to say. I think Daz Newsome might be the only guy who is currently contracted who had done some punt return work this past season. So if Kyle Phillips could come in and make an impact there as well, then uh, maybe it does justify reaching a little bit uh, for that position here. Yeah, no, definitely. And Kyle Phillips is one of the best return men in this class. I I want to say he averaged something like over 20 yards per return in college, and he had two total returns for touchdowns at UCLA. So uh, you're looking at a guy who can really – he can field punts. I f- he can field kickoffs as well at the next level. Uh, I think there's a lot to work with there. So that special team's value just only uh, continues to help out his uh, draft stock, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. So we're now venturing into um, what is the first – that I will be using of the Bears' original picks here uh, <laughs> in the fifth round at 147. And I, I'm also going to preface these last few picks uh, by just you know reiterating that you know most of my familiarity with these names comes from just downloaded rosters on, on NCAA 14 that I'm still playing on my PlayStation <laughs> 3. So, you know, and, and who knows how accurate those uh, fan-created rosters actually are. Uh, but I... I do see some value and I saw some value based on um, kind of the simulators big board um, here as well. And so there's also question marks. I, this is the one position I addressed that you didn't mention earlier on as a position of need. And I get why you wouldn't mention it, but I do think there is still room to add to the running back room with Tariq Cohen as a question mark going into this season still um damian williams is a free agent so not sure if he would be coming back and so realistically you're just looking at david montgomery and khalil herbert which very good one-two punch there but as we've seen in recent years it's always helpful to have a deep running back room and so i saw the notre dame running back kyron williams i believe is how you pronounce his first name yeah available here and i thought you know in the fifth round this seems like a, a decent place to take a chance on on a guy who could add a little bit more depth to that running back room. And, you know, depending on what ends up happening with Montgomery as he gets closer to, uh, you know, payday, if he's going to be sticking around, it, it might be helpful to have a, another guy in that room that can grow familiar with Luke Getze's system um, and potentially stick around for a few years as a contributor. Yeah, and I like that a lot. Honestly, I think that drafting running backs late is it's worth a shot because so many late round running backs develop into starters or at least quality contributors. So uh, as we've seen in Chicago with 
Uh, Khalil Herbert, they selected, who's turned into a solid contributor who's shown promise. Uh, David Montgomery is a third round pick. It's a little bit higher, but that still shows. And then Jordan Howard being a fifth round pick a couple of years ago, Tariq Cohen round four. Uh, you can get some legit guys who can stick around for a while and make an impact later on that, you know, that day three there at the running back position. So I think Kyron Williams is fantastic value in round five. Uh, I honestly, I'm going to have him when it's all said and done in my top five. I think I have him as RB4 right now. So to have him fall to the fifth round is uh, a dream come true, basically. I think he's, in terms of ball carrier vision, one of the most decisive runners in the class. I think he offers good uh, agility, good breakaway speed, and he has value in the passing game, too. He's a really good pass catcher. He's a really good uh, pass blocker, which is a little bit surprising considering he's uh, on the shorter side for the position, but he, he brings a lot to the table. He's a legit guy who can develop into a three-down back, so to get that in round five, uh, regardless of whatever role he plays in 2022, that's really good long-term value, so I like that a lot. Wow, Jacob, I'm a lot better at this than I thought. <laughs> yeah, you're, a, you're, you're really doing a good job of uh, hitting all the marks for me here, for sure. Yeah, I, I, I guess I shouldn't have ignored that phone call from Bill Polian a couple weeks yeah. ago. Come on, man. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know, I know. It seems like a spam call, but every once in a while, you know, you never know. It might be a lucky day. Yeah, yep, yep. So, uh, we have a couple more picks to get to here. Um, again, this is kind of what I would dub the crapshoot section of my mock draft. However, I did still want to uh, look for value based on the big board and look for value just based on team needs as well as just kind of you know, positional value where we're at. So um, round six at pick 184, uh, this is the second of the two original Bears picks that I'm, I'm selecting. And so this is finally uh, addressing one of your three biggest needs, which is center. And uh, from what I understand, it's not a super deep draft at center. Um, so in the sixth round, I, being able to pick up someone who, you know, might be able to come in and compete at least, you know, you know, give some type of competitive um, relationship to uh, Sam Mustafer and, you know, make it a little bit more of a competition for that starting position. And so that comes in the form of Cameron Jurgens, who is a center from uh, Nebraska. Yeah. So with Jurgens, you're looking at a guy who's, a little bit undersized, admittedly. I know he's sub 300 pounds, and he's not like the lengthiest guy out there, but he's technically sound and he's athletic, which I really like. He's the type of guy you can consistently get low uh, at the point of attack, get his weight underneath him, uses his hands well, and he's a really good mover in space. So I think from a power perspective, you're not looking at a true mauler per se, but you're looking at someone who can you know, clear out a zone pretty well and to be able to seal off lanes in the run game. So uh, I do like that value uh, that late on day three. I think that I don't know if he's the starter at the next level, but I think he's someone who can at the very least be pretty solid depth. And there's no such thing as too much depth along the offensive line, I believe. So that's uh, a good value pick there. And I think that uh, depending on what they do in free agency, I wouldn't be opposed to uh, Jurgens being a target uh, later there on day three. Yeah, I, I also, you know, as a University of Nebraska system alum, uh, you know, I know firsthand what some of those big corn fed boys can do yeah. down there. So, 
bringing that to the Bears locker room uh, could be beneficial for sure, even as depth, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And so now, now, Jacob, this is the final pick. Um, I wasn't able to swing a seventh rounder in the 2022 draft, um, but I thought that was okay since we were doubling up on third round, fourth round, and sixth round picks. So a little bit of a trade-off here. So the final pick is coming at pick 194 in the sixth round. And this is, for me, this was a lot of reputation of the institution, um, if I'm being totally honest. And so I went with uh, a defensive tackle, I believe, uh, LeBron Ray out of Alabama. And the thought process was I, I know that Alabama always has just an incredibly you know, competitive, tough, strong defensive line. Um, uh, uh, Nick Saban, I don't know why I couldn't think of Nick Saban's name, but Nick (laughs) Saban knows how to coach these guys up. And, you know, obviously Bill Belichick approves of his ability to do so. Um, And so LeBron Ray here was my choice to try and um, bring in a guy who can play that three technique role for uh, Matt Eberflus and Alan Williams on the defensive end. Yeah, and I think LeBron Ray's a good fit as a three-tech. I think he's the type of guy, he's a little bit raw from a technical perspective, but I like his raw strength and I like his burst off the snap, and that's something that uh, Iberflus likes, those explosive three-techs who can, you know, maybe generate a little bit of pressure in the passing game. And Ray's the type of dude, he's got a strong enough anchor, he can eat up gaps well in the run. Uh, And if you're able to work to maybe minimize the issues of pad level or something and maybe add a little bit more in his pass rushing arsenal. He's the type of guy I think he can be a solid rotational defensive lineman at the next level. And I think getting that in the sixth round is very good value, especially, you know, with where the Bears are at right now with how much they have, like how much is up in the air at the defensive line position. I think that that'd be a good value. And just a good overall position to target in the draft this year. Totally. And uh, so I'm kind of hoping for lightning to strike twice, so to speak, after last year, uh, Kiris Tonga being a seventh round pick and, and still managing to make an impression uh, during the regular season. Um, you know, I would argue pick for pick in last year's draft class, you're looking at probably Herbert and Tonga as, as those guys that ended up being the greatest value. So if you're able to kind of replicate that to a certain extent in the form of uh, LeBron Ray, who might be a, a better fit scheme-wise for the new defense, uh, I would take that for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think just overall in this class, you did a good job of thinking about uh, scheme fit and just finding raw, pure talent and value. I know some people like to draft for need a bit too often, but I think that... Uh, it's equally as important, if not more so, to just get the value and put together the best roster as you possibly can. So uh, I I like this mock draft for sure. I'm definitely a fan of what you're able to put together. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, it it was fun to dive a little bit more into it. I did do just like very minimal research into these guys as I was coming up on the clock. Uh, So I, I realize I probably wouldn't be cut out for the actual GM position because that probably <laughs> wouldn't fly. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> but Jacob, also before uh, we get wrapped up here, I do want to talk a little bit. Well, I should say I want to give you a stage to kind of talk about some of your draft crushes. Yeah, definitely. So I, uh, you know, it, it's really good timing that we have this out. So 
I, I've recently, as of this recording, I'll have just published both my offensive and defensive, uh, my guys team to quote. So, you know, that's just a, an offense and defense made up of the guys at each position. I probably like more than the average person. So uh, a couple of guys that I like, I've made it very much known that I'm a fan of David Bell, the receiver out of Purdue, uh, almost to the point of parody at this point. And I think he's a physical receiver who can separate well. Uh, and, and you're not looking at a true speedster, but you're looking at a route running technician with very, very good hands and good physicality at the catch point. Uh, Sky Moore, wide receiver out of Western Michigan, is incredibly fast and a polished route runner that I really like. You're looking at Tyler Smith, offensive lineman out of Tulsa. He's nasty, just physical, and he's the type of guy that you really want a tone setter like that along the offensive line. So I'm a very big fan of him as well. Uh, just a couple other guys I'm looking for, you know, thinking about defenders. I like Chad Muma as a linebacker. Uh, Jojo Doman from Nebraska is another guy that I really like. I think he's got a lot of uh, value dropping back in coverage. Uh, corner, I like Marcus Jones out of Houston uh, as a guy that I think is really good. Uh, just athletic tools, and he's a valuable return man. And then the last guy I want to go with is Kirby Joseph, a safety out of Illinois, who I think is really intelligent, and he moves well. He's not an elite athlete, but just because of how quick he processes things, uh, he's able to move around all over the field. Awesome. Yeah, it's it's nice to to hear a couple of names to look out for, for sure. And I'm going to have to check out uh, that full list of those guys just to add a little bit more information to what I'm working with here. I honestly, through this exercise, I have kind of revamped my interest in um, the draft process and kind of the scouting process. I'm, I'm never going to be the guy to sit down and watch tons of film. Uh, so don't worry. I'm not coming for you, Jacob. <laughs> I know you were, you know, shivering in your boots just at the thought, but uh, no, that's awesome. It's great to hear some of those guys to be on the lookout for. Uh, I think a great way to wrap up, this conversation is if we can try to look into our crystal balls and make one uh, Bears draft prediction each. How does that sound? Is that something you think you could pull off? Yeah, uh, I'm just going to warn you that this one's entirely off of gut because I, I do have one in mind that I was actually thinking about uh, before we started because I was thinking, hmm, you know, I have a feeling this guy could end up with the Bears because of his playing style. So. Uh, I do have a guy in mind that I think the Bears could draft. And I'm looking, I like close my eyes. I imagine the pre-draft graphic popping up on the TV. And if it looks good, if it looks like, okay, I can see this, then that's just my gut feeling saying it could happen. I know it's a, it's a weird process, but that's how I got to, at some point in the draft, the Bears will take Cincinnati safety, Brian Cook. Okay. It's a very specific prediction. I'm not saying that with like a source or anything. That's just me saying my gut. Brian Cook as an intelligent, hard-hitting safety with solid like speed downfield. I think he's the type of guy who Matt Eberflus would like in the secondary. So that's my ultra specific, ultra vague. Those those are those two things mean absolutely different things ultra specific <laughs> gut feeling brian cook will end up a chicago bear 
Yeah. Uh, so, it, I mean, it, it just means it's going to happen, right? Uh, yeah. Which I'm totally fine with that. Like, I, we already went over, I definitely feel like safety can and probably should be addressed in the draft. So if they're able to do that, I, I would have no complaints with with that move for sure. Uh, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna. I went back and forth with this. This is probably the opposite of a gut uh, take on this one, <laughs> if I'm yeah. being honest, because I and it coincides with what I ended up doing. But I think that Ryan Poles is going to trade back twice, at least twice okay. in this draft. Um, he and I know this is partly GM speak, but he did make the comment that he really wants to build, quote unquote, the right way through the draft. Um, and unfortunately, Pace has not really stocked a lot of those depth pieces, has not really been stockpiling draft capital by any means. In fact, doing the opposite. And while I'm totally fine with having Justin Fields as our first round pick for consecutive years. Uh, I do think that there's value to be had in some trading back. So I, I think Ryan Poles and his new front office team will see that value as well. And I think we'll we'll see a couple of trades back um, in April. I, I hope that's the case. I certainly do. Uh, as we've seen here through this episode, especially, I'm a big fan of that process. So uh, I'm hoping that yours comes true, especially. Yeah, and and I don't know necessarily that it'll be quite as conservative. It probably won't be as conservative as my mock was, where I traded back and it was three times and I didn't trade up at all. Uh, if I'm being totally honest, I didn't trade up because a lot of the names didn't mean enough to me to warrant that. But I, I, I do see a couple of trades back and then, you know, they might be super aggressive on, on some mid-round guys that they're really high on and see some good value in. And so maybe they trade up in you know like the fourth third round or something like that where they really can see some benefit in doing so um but i do think that polls is gonna try and and accumulate some draft capital to restock the cupboards most certainly most certainly and uh time will tell exactly what they do there's still free agency there's still a lot of stuff to happen but uh, i'm excited for this draft process and i hope that they take a similar approach to what we have in mind uh but We'll see. We'll see. There's a reason that they're the ones in charge. So got to hope for the best. Absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, like Jacob just said, we are in peak draft season. Uh, So at the time of this or the time this episode's release, uh, the combine is going to be going on. So we're going to be we're just right at the top of the ski lift and we're about to be riding all the way down uh, (laughs) into April. So. Uh, it's an exciting time, and you're going to definitely want to keep up with Jacob in, in all of his draft coverage because he's going to be firing on all cylinders, and I can personally attest to how valuable his work is in, in providing you some background. If you're Even if you're just a casual fan of the NFL or if you're just a hardcore Bears fan and want to have an idea of what some of these guys can do, um, Jacob is definitely the guy to follow. So, Jacob, why don't you uh, let everyone know where they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so you can check out my Twitter account at Jacob Infante 24. Uh, I obviously do stuff here at Windy City Gridiron. Uh, I'm the lead draft analyst there, and I'll be doing some NFL draft uh, rankings, analysis, mock drafts, what have you, in the next couple of months. Uh, I also do work over at the Draft Wire. Uh, I do a lot of prospect interviews. I've had a couple of big ones come out over the last month or so. Uh, and there should be a lot more coming up. So uh, stay tuned for that. 
And yeah, that's that's where you can find me, TJ. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, the pleasure's been all mine, Jacob. I, I really appreciate you being here and providing uh, some of that expertise that you carry with you. It, it's absolutely fantastic. And for full context, uh, I, I know it, we've had uh, a lot of struggles getting this recorded and everything. So I appreciate <laughs> your patience throughout the process and, and making it happen. And also because you've been on like six podcasts in the last two weeks. <laughs> so. Uh. <laughs> If you uh, if you enjoyed uh, hearing from Jacob, definitely check out his other podcast appearances and, and what he's been able to do and share uh, on those as well. Uh, but thank you again, Jacob. We definitely appreciate it. And uh, we'll see you next time. Yeah, of course. My pleasure. Thank you so much. All right. So that was a great conversation with Jacob and Fonte from Windy City Gridiron and just a general NFL draft analyst. I, I was super excited to be able to have Jacob come on. It, it's painful sometimes to talk about the Bears in general, uh, but especially when you're doing it on your own, it's rough. You don't have anyone to commiserate with or to share in the optimism uh, in times like this. So it was great to have Jacob on. And great conversation with Isaac as well, talking about Batman and our expectations uh, for the character and, and what we hope to see in the new movie. Uh, great to have both those guys on this episode. So thankful to both of them for sure. Taking a look at what we've got coming up on the schedule. Uh, Monday, we're actually going to have a review episode of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre dropping. And this is... Uh, if you didn't know that this actually came out, it went straight to Netflix. So streaming on Netflix is the 2022 release, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, let's just say that that review is going to be interesting. Uh, if you want to hear more about this movie, and you probably do want to hear about it, I don't know so much that you will want to watch it, but you'll want to hear about it. So definitely make sure to check out that episode dropping on Monday. And then you can watch the movie on Netflix either. It's available now, so you can watch it before the review, or you can wait and determine whether it's worth your time after hearing my thoughts there. And the next full episode, episode 203 of the Waiting in the Sky podcast, is going to be coming on March 17th. To tie into the release of Final Fantasy Stranger of Paradise, we are going to be doing a Final Fantasy March Madness tournament bracket. Uh, so wanted to find some way to incorporate the legendary, iconic Final Fantasy franchise into the podcast. And because it's just so prolific, there's so many Final Fantasy titles out there, it seemed like a natural fit for a March Madness style bracket. And so I'm very excited to bring in some uh, knowledgeable Final Fantasy guests uh, to go through that process with. Definitely gonna be one of our more interesting segments, so you wanna make sure you get tuned in for that one. And then, just as like a guilty pleasure of mine, because I couldn't help myself, I also wanna talk about The Luck of the Irish, the classic Disney Channel original movie that is available now on Disney+. Plus about the high school basketball star who comes from a family of leprechauns. Uh, it's a little bit of a spoiler, but it's also the whole point of the movie. So that is going to spur a conversation about DCOMs, Disney Channel original movies in general, and just kind of taking a look back at that uh, because that episode is dropping on uh, St. Patrick's Day. So what better tie-in than The Luck of the Irish? So very excited for that next episode. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast 
and that you are able to follow along when that episode releases. Of course, another great way to follow the show is going to be on our social media platforms. You can find us at In the Sky Pod across all of the great social media platforms, your favorite included. So we are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Letterboxd, and also on YouTube if you would prefer to use that platform as a way to listen to the podcast, you can do so currently. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter at TJ Starman if you are so inclined. Uh, I want to thank Isaac, aka Infernal Griffin, uh, as well as Jacob Infante uh, for joining us for this episode. Great conversations. I know that this episode was a little bit longer, but I think the quality of conversation totally justified it. So thank you again to those guys for joining me. And of course, I want to thank my audio producer, Richard Huell, for helping us out and making sure that everything sounds amazing. Just as a quick plug as well, if you're interested in having any kind of audio work done, any editing, things like that, Richard is available. Check out metatronmusic.net and uh, he'll get you set up with whatever it is that you need. I can personally attest to that. But thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and we will see you next time. Take care. <laughs>